In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to conclude our series on the teaching of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on the Eucharist. And in particular, we're going to look at two things. Why do we prepare for the reception of communion, and how do we prepare for the reception of communion, and what are the fruits of Holy Communion? So I hope you enjoy this episode, which wraps up our series on the Eucharist. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome back to the St. Philip Institute podcast. Uh, We're going to jump right in today. We're looking at the final section of the Catechism on the Eucharist. And really, um, sort of at the end of this series of going through this this whole series of paragraphs, um, I want to just highlight a a couple of big ideas uh, in in this last last section. Um, And and that's uh, what it takes to receive communion, um, and then uh, what the fruits of communion are, and then finally talk about what the Catechism calls, the, the Catechism calls the Eucharist a pledge of the glory to come. Um, so, so really just three things um, to kind of round us out here, as I hope you've enjoyed this series. Um, in this last section, so starting in paragraph 1382, going to 1405, and, and in the last section, Uh, The Catechism again emphasizes for us the fact that in the Eucharist we're celebrating a sacrifice as well as a meal. So this first paragraph, 1382, tells us the Mass is at the same time, and I love this word, and inseparably the sacrificial memorial of the cross and the sacred banquet of communion with the Lord's body and blood. So there's this notion, I think maybe it's, it's getting a lot of steam now about how we, we, you know, calling the Mass a meal or a banquet is, you know, sort of diminishing the fact that it's a sacrifice. And I love that the Catechism says very clearly here, it's both of those things, inseparably so, and at the same time. And so that to call the altar an altar of sacrifice is right and to call the altar a table of the heavenly banquet is also right. We don't have to pick between one of those two. Both of those images are present for us here. So in, in the beginning of this, this section, 30, 1382 and 1383, the Catechism is just teaching, yes, it is a meal and it is a banquet. Um, but I, I want to draw our attention here to the, the idea of receiving communion. Um, so we've talked about what communion is, how it happens, what we believe about it, but now to actually talk about receiving it. So there's a, a section of several paragraphs here where, where the, the Catechism discusses um, what we should be doing as we prepare for communion, um, and I, I really want to draw your attention to just a couple of ideas here. So in paragraph 1384, the Catechism says this, "...the Lord addresses an invitation to us, urging us to receive him in the sacrament of the Eucharist, 
Truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And of course, that's from John chapter 6, the uh, Bread of Life discourse. Jesus himself tells his apostles in very strong language how important the reception of the Eucharist is, and he can't make it any clearer. Again, <laughs> unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life within you. In the context of John 6 and, and the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus compares the Eucharist to the manna in the Exodus, the Old Testament, and says, yeah, your fathers ate the manna in the desert, but they died. But you who eat my body and drink my blood will have life, uh, everlasting life. This is a huge deal that the Lord is calling us to receive him in the Eucharist that seriously. So how do we respond? And that's really what the Catechism gets at in this, in this series of paragraphs here. Is how do we respond to that direct invitation from the Lord? So the first suggestion the Catechism says is to respond. This is 1385. To respond to that invitation, we must prepare ourselves for so great and so holy a moment. And this takes a lot of forms, and I think in the most basic way it should mean trying to get to Mass, you know, before the uh, the the entrance hymn has started, um, trying to get to Mass on time. Like, that's a big part, and with, the, you know, I've got five kids, sometimes that can be a challenge, but it's not just that kind of basic preparation. I, I did a catechist training recently, um, and, and there were some discussion about, you know, how we prepare to receive the Eucharist, and somebody made the comment about how, how they get ready for Thanksgiving. Uh, they clean their whole house, they do all of this cooking for two or three days leading up to it, prepare things ahead of time so they can just throw them in the oven, they pick out clothes, they decorate their house, do all this stuff so they can just eat regular food. And But when it's Sunday, oftentimes they're like running out of the house, yelling at their kids, trying to find shoes, and they barely get there on time. And I thought that was a really interesting observation. But more than just the practical preparation, the Church is really encouraging us to a spiritual preparation for receiving the Eucharist. So the Catechism goes on to say that St. Paul urges us to examine our conscience. This is from uh, St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Anyone conscious of grave sin must receive the sacrament of reconciliation before coming to communion. So I think a lot of us, a lot of Catholics, we know that when you're going to prepare for your first communion, you've got to go to confession first. At least that's the normal course of things. You go to confession, and then later you go to your first Eucharist. What I do think is very much missing um, in, in most American Catholic households is the idea of the ongoing relationship between the sacrament of reconciliation and the reception of the Eucharist. And the Catechism here says it very clearly and goes on to explain it in a little bit more detail that the Eucharist cannot just be received anytime we want. We have to really discern whether or not we should be approaching the Eucharist and if we are conscious of a grave sin, of a mortal sin, we must receive the sacrament of reconciliation before coming to communion. 
And why is that? It's not because our sins are so bad that the Lord doesn't want to unite himself to us. It is because those grave sins, those mortal sins, require those require restitution. Those require to be corrected before we should receive that gift that the Father wants to give us of himself in the Eucharist. So in paragraph 1386, the Church says, Before so great a sacrament, namely the Eucharist, the faithful can only echo humbly and with ardent faith the words of the centurion, which is, this is what we pray in the Mass, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Like We need to recognize that the gift that is being given to us in the Eucharist is so significant that we just can't receive it unworthily. When we have a serious sin, to go and, and present ourselves is 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 really a, a, to receive to receive communion is really sort of a, a lie with our body that, that that we are receiving something that indicates that we are in communion with Christ when in fact you know if if we have a mortal sin we're, we're actually we've broken that communion and it needs to be mended and it can easily the Lord wants to uh, mend that relationship and he, we we do that in the sacrament of reconciliation. I also really love this line from the the Eastern liturgy, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, um, which is the the prayer that they say. Uh, so we say, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. And they say this prayer, which I had never, I've never seen before and, until I read it um, here in the Catechism preparing for this episode. O Son of God, bring me into communion today with your mystical supper. I shall not tell your enemies the secret nor kiss you with Judas's kiss. But like the good thief, I cried, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 1387 here, the Catechism says this, To prepare for the worthy reception of this sacrament, the faithful should observe the fast required in their church. Bodily demeanor, and it says gestures and clothing, ought to convey the respect, solemnity, and joy of this moment when Christ becomes our guest. So it, it, the, the Catechism then moves on from discussing seriously how do we prepare, um, what are we doing, you know, how are we discerning our, our lives before we go to receive the Eucharist, and then talks about how often we should receive. And it's really fascinating because technically the Church only requires us to receive the Eucharist once a year, hopefully during the Easter season, if possible. Like that's the minimum requirement. That's um, one of our obligations as Catholics, one of the precepts of the Church. However, we are encouraged to receive the Eucharist more often. And so the Catechism actually says two really important things. One is that it is better for us if we can, meaning if we're able, if, we've, if we are properly disposed, we, we don't need to go to confession. If we're at Mass— and we are properly prepared to receive the Eucharist, it is better for us to receive it than to not receive it. And that might seem like a totally obvious statement today, um, but in the development of Catholicism, in especially at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, people were not receiving communion very frequently. Uh, it was really something that had a little bit of a stigma uh, that, oh, maybe nuns or, or clergy, they receive the Eucharist often, but everyone else, you know, will, will receive it at Easter, maybe a couple of other times. But it certainly wasn't sort of like the default assumption that you should go to Mass and you should receive communion. Now, there's probably good things about that in that it kept people in a very serious state of discerning, should I receive communion today? Uh, maybe I need to go to confession, right? But there's also some harms in that people were wandering throughout their life 
with fewer and fewer opportunities to receive the Eucharist, which does so many good things for us. It changes us in very real ways. So tied together here are these two themes. Receiving communion means we need to prepare, uh, but also we should try and receive it frequently. Now, if that means we need to prepare frequently by going to confession often, do that. But we should try to receive the Eucharist frequently at every Mass we go to, if we can. The Catechism says this in paragraph 1388. And then in 1389, it says that the Church obliges the faithful to take part in the Divine Liturgy on Sundays and feast days and prepared by the Sacrament of Reconciliation, as I said, here's the minimum, to receive the Eucharist at least once a year, if possible, during the Easter season. But then note this sentence, which is a significant thing if you, if you know kind of what Eucharistic practice was, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But the Church strongly encourages the faithful to receive the Holy Eucharist on Sundays and feast days, or more often still, even daily. That is really significant, that the Church explicitly encourages us to receive the Eucharist as often as we can. Um, and, And just something for all of us to consider, could you make it to Mass more than just on Sundays? And that's a tough question. I know people have a lot of other things going on in their lives, but can you make it more than once a week? Do you? And if if you don't, why not? And I'm not trying to condemn anyone. The Church doesn't want to condemn you by saying you're doing something wrong if you don't receive it more often, but it is because precisely how big of a gift this is that the Church wants to encourage us to receive it more often, more frequently. Okay, now I want to look at the fruits of the reception of communion. Because it's precisely because, well, it's because of two things. Because of how big of a gift the Eucharist is, the Church wants to encourage us to avail ourselves of that. Um, and because when we're properly disposed and we receive the Eucharist, it does a bunch of things for us. These are called the fruits of Holy Communion, and there's a list of them here in the Catechism. What I want to do is just read really briefly in bullet point style, what are the fruits, and then comment on some of them um, a, a little bit more. So first, Holy Communion augments our union with Christ. Second, Holy Communion separates us from sin. It wipes away venial sins. It preserves us from future mortal sins. The Eucharist makes the Church. It expresses the unity of the Church. I like this one. The Eucharist commits us to the poor. And the role of the Eucharist and the unity of Christians. So these are several different headings that the Catechism gives us for what is the fruit of communion? Why do we have communion? What do we sort of experience and receive when we go to receive communion? The first is the most obvious. By receiving communion, you are entering into the deepest relationship you could possibly have with Christ because he literally becomes a part of your body. Right? You receive him into your body, and he becomes a part of you. You become a tabernacle, right? You are, for just a moment, a tabernacle of, of Christ. Um, that is a significant thing, right? To, that, that Jesus humbles himself so much to allow us to receive him in that way increases our union with him. And this is what the Catechism says is the principal fruit of receiving the Eucharist. This is the main reason why we do it, Uh, and Christ left us this gift. But then the Catechism goes on to note this. It makes this analogy between 
food for our bodily journey and food for our spiritual journey and says, just as we need the nourishment of ordinary food for our bodily life, so too, so too do we need the nourishment of the Eucharist um, for our spiritual life. So Christ, first of all, gives us communion to augment our union with him, to give us a greater union with him. And at one and the same time, by doing that, Holy Communion separates us from sin. Now, it bears repeating, you have to have already gone to confession for your mortal or grave sins. But if you do not have mortal sin, if you're not in a state of mortal sin and you receive the Eucharist, your union with Christ will be strengthened, and at the same time, you will be separated from sin. And I love the, the, the way that the Church explains this. It says, The Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. In other words, Christ can't be closely united to us without automatically pushing sin further from us. If Christ is going to come near to us, then sin is going to be pushed away. That's what Christ removes sins. He conquers sin. So the Church teaches us here in these sections of the Catechism that if you are struggling to conquer sin, one of the ways that you can do so more easily is to receive the Eucharist frequently and in a worthy fashion, because the Eucharist will wipe away all of your venial sins, and if you're still in a state of grace, frequent reception of the communion can preserve us from future mortal sins. It's like we're taking Christ, sort of, you know, sort of wrapping his mantle around us each time we receive the Eucharist to make it, to, to sort of preserve us and strengthen us in our ability um, to move through life, not being so drawn by venial and, and mortal sins. So it's really, really important to recognize that it's not merely an act of obedience to receive the Eucharist once a year, but it's actually this important gift that can help us in our spiritual life, help us grow in holiness, because it is the source of holiness. Right? We said earlier in this session, in this series, rather, that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the spiritual life, and, and this, again, is what it means. It's, it's where we get everything from, and it's where we're going to at the same time. Um, now, there's a couple uh, uh, things here that, that a couple of fruits of the Eucharist that are more of sort of a, a wish for the church with communion than maybe uh, an absolute fact, right? The, the unity of the church is is represented by the Eucharist. Like, that's true. Uh, but at the same time, is in the same breath that we say that, we also have to recognize that there's a fracture in that unity, right? There is not one single body of Christ. Uh, it, it has been fractured in different ways, um, and the Eucharist is ultimately the hope that we have for restoring that unity. But I want, I want to look at, at paragraph 1397 on fruits of the Eucharist. This one really struck me as I was preparing for this, uh, for this podcast. The Eucharist commits us to the poor to receive in truth the body and blood of Christ given up for us. We must recognize Christ in the poorest, his brethren. And then there's a quote here from St. John Chrysostom, a homily that he preached on 1 Corinthians, which we talked about earlier. You have tasted the blood of the Lord, yet you do not recognize your brother. You dishonor this table when you do not judge worthy of sharing your food. Someone judged worthy to partake to take part in this meal. God freed you from all your sins and invited you here, 
but you have not become more merciful. And so what St. John Chrysostom is saying is, if you are a member of the Church, and you receive the Eucharist, and you are worthy to do so, but it doesn't change you in any way, it doesn't help you to see the poor uh, in a more merciful light, it doesn't help you to see Jesus in the poorest among us, then it's not really, then you're missing out on something. Um, and, and I love this sort of dichotomy he draws, that you are dishonoring the altar of the Eucharist when you come to receive it, but you won't share your earthly food with someone else who is sharing at this altar with you, right? They're supposed to be part of the body of Christ just like you are, but you are holding them in disdain by not extending to them what in some, some ways belongs to them, namely your food, right? And I, I just want to really encourage you if, you, if you've never heard this fruit of the Eucharist or if you're, never, you're not familiar with this, look, look at paragraph 1397 of the Catechism. Meditate on this, this quotation, especially from St. John Chrysostom, and ask yourself, you know, by the reception of the Eucharist, through your Eucharistic devotion, is it, is it changing the way that you see the poor? Is it changing the way that you see others? Is it making you more merciful? Because ultimately, the Eucharist is supposed to make us more like Christ. I mean, we're receiving Christ himself, so we should become more like him. So are you more merciful? Are you seeing uh, the poor as your brethren in Christ more because of your reception of the Eucharist, or is it in some way, you know, not, not connecting? And then there's a couple paragraphs here, I don't want to really uh, work through too much of it, that just talk about the, the difference in Eucharistic communion between Catholics and Protestants and then Eastern churches. Um, and the, the basic idea is that we do believe Eastern churches have a, a valid Eucharist because they have a apostolic succession, uh, but in you know ecclesial communities that are founded from the Reformation, they have lost apostolic succession, um, and because of that, they do not do not have a, a Eucharist that we can share in. Uh, and what's sort of difficult about that section is that the Church is expressing a sad reality that the Eucharist, which is supposed to be the sign of our unity, sort of can't be with some of these communities because they have ruptured that unity, um, but that ultimately our grounding for hope in returning to that unity has to come through the Eucharist. And I want to close here, close up this whole series of, of five episodes. I hope you've really enjoyed this. I know it's been very good for us, uh, been, been very enjoyable for me at the Institute to really work on systematically teaching through um, some, some doctrines, some basic teachings. Um, so I want to close this up with what the Catechism ends, a section here called the Eucharist, Pledge of the Glory to Come, paragraph 1402. I think this is a really beautiful way to end things. In an ancient prayer, the Church acclaims the mystery of the Eucharist, O sacred banquet in which Christ is received as food. The memory of his passion is renewed. The soul is filled with the grace and pledge of the life to come is given to us. If the Eucharist is the memorial of the Passover of the Lord Jesus, if by our communion at the altar we are filled with every heavenly blessing and grace, then the Eucharist is also an anticipation of the heavenly glory. And I think this really sums up a lot of themes, the idea of the Eucharist as a sacrifice of, of Christ's passion, but also of a meal. The Eucharist as being related to the Passover, so it's sort of 
something from the past, but it's also a pledge of something to come, namely our future glory. 1404, and we'll close it out with this this final line. I'll let the, I'll let the catechism speak the last words. The Church knows that the Lord comes even now in His Eucharist, and that He is there in our midst. However, His presence is veiled. Therefore, we celebrate the Eucharist, awaiting the blessed hope and coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, asking to share in your glory when every tear will be wiped away. On that day, we shall see you, our God, as you are. We shall become like you and praise you forever through Christ our Lord. There is no surer pledge or clearer sign of this great hope in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells than the Eucharist. Every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on, and we break the one bread that provides the medicine of immortality, the antidote for death, and the food that makes us live forever in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.